In verse 7 of this chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have somewhat of a prelude or at least a dovetail in a carpentry term to what the psalmist was alluding to in the first four verses of 116 last week. And we know that there was anguish in the penning of that psalm, but it dissolves in the latter verses to its closing by simply what we know is true, a greater revelation of God in the remembrance of what God has done. And so that's one of the things that helps us to stay focused. It helps us to stay the course when in those times in which anguish is upon us, and we'll look at what that means again, that we get to see the faithfulness of God that outruns us. We can't outrun him. We can sometimes endeavor to outrun people. It doesn't generally work. But the Lord right now is also voicing through Paul a particular agreeable, in other words, agreeable outcome of what it's like to, to feel in anguish. And there's good in what Paul says here. We have this treasure he first identifies in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So we and what the Holy Spirit has inhabited are defined as a person of excellence. Now, I was joking with you in terms of how I felt at the time I was going through a transformation because I just because. <laughs> but Paul's going deeper right now, beyond what would be, we would say, the appearance. He's going very deep inside each one of us in terms of the character that God is fashioning on behalf of himself. But it's important to note that when he identifies this as treasure, it means that there's great wealth, wealth that we can't even fully appreciate with regard to the immensity of it, the value that it represents from God's perspective that he, abiding within us by his spirit, has put a mark on us. And we have no economy here on earth, nor ever could, that would equal or exceed what Paul is talking about here. In verse 8, it indicates this. Paul was aware of it. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. You've been in a press before where you just kind of moshed together with volumes of people. When there are people that are all doing something related to making a move and there's not enough opportunity to keep that movement going, then that crush becomes identified as a stampede. And usually there are people that get hurt in those situations. Paul will talk about a pain that was real. He experienced them and vocalizes it many times in the scriptures. But in this, this is a hard pressing, and it says that on every side, there's not a side that is not pressed in what he understands as a, if you would, an anguish of what it means to walk in faith and to follow the Lord, trusting in him. Every side, yet not crushed, we are perplexed, but not in despair. 
And the perplexity there is simply that there are things that we will not fully understand in how situations come upon us, nor even how God is going to make something with regard to that circumstance turn out for us. We just have to have a trust and belief that God is in charge. He continues on saying this, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He continues to say, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Notice this, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Things happen to our bodies. Things happen to Zach's body. And he met a friend who seven days after his accident had an incident in which his body has changed. There are things that happen to these bodies, but they are temporal. And though we hope that on the side of recovery and repair, there will be restoration to fullness. But Paul looks at this and says with regard to that in this body, that it is ultimately a body of death. It's dying. And he says that in this, we are able to identify with basically the sufferings of the Lord, what not only he went through, but ultimately what he would give his life for. And he would do that in dying horrifically. It says in verse 11, for we who live are always delivered to death. And it says, for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Since then, death is working in us, but life in you. He's making a distinguish, a distinguishing difference between where he presently is at and where others may be. Very often, we would say, well, we're not really a persecuted church where we are in the United States, but he's saying, nevertheless, to those that may not be where he's at, he's giving a reason as to a hope that is within him and a willingness to continue suffering. And it says basically, because in so doing, there's a manifestation in the mortal flesh that he feels is not only having this pressing and this crushing, there is a glorification that is taking place. Death is working in us, but life is in you. When we see where others may be suffering, it really touches us, doesn't it? It humbles us. It humbles us in terms of what they're going through and the why they're going through it. And it also challenges us in terms of how would we be going through it. I think that very frequently with Zach. How would I be going through what he's going through, but he's a model right now in a, in a manner and means by which he is suffering in his body, and it's temporal. It's going to be repaired inevitably. We hope to see something that happens radically to him, and we do see great things. But to some degree, the Lord is using this change that has happened to him to bring change to other people that it has happened to as well. He's a, in a very exclusive club right now. And the only one that probably can talk to those people aren't simply the technicians and the nurses and the physicians. They are the people that can say, hey, he identifies with me. This guy is living out an experience that I can identify with, and he's living it out in a way that's different 
then perhaps I have been living it out. That's the, that's the concept that would be treated here. There will be those who live outside of it. Zachary's in a fraternity and a sorority of individuals who have been paralyzed. So when they see him in a condition that is extraordinary, above the crises, above the anguish, it ministers to them. They go, how does he do that? And even though they, they may be all in chairs or devices likened to that, the attitude makes a huge difference in how a person fits in that chair and moves in their handicap to be a light for the Lord and to be a voice of God. So this continues on here, and it says, And since we have, in verse 13, the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul says one day we're all going to be gathered together. What separates us now, which is distances between where I'm at and where you're at, what I'm experiencing, what you may not yet be experienced, is all going to be summed up one day when the Lord is gathering us together. And he will find at that time a present tense reality with those people. He goes on in concluding this, and that would be in verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So the tie-in here relates simply to this psalmist in 116 having what would seem to be indicative an anguishing moment in which he has been focused not on what has hurt him, who has helped him. And that's where we want to be. We all have hurts, someone, something, but our attention needs to be focused on the one who helps us through ultimately the hurt. We've all got hurts, you know. Sometimes it's feelings that get hurt. Those are important to the Lord. It may be indeed through physical malady that hurts. I was just getting in the van the other day. It was pouring down rain. I decided to bring out my British clear bell umbrella. thought it was cool, made me feel cool. But when I tried to collapse it, it didn't, and I struggled with it. And then I tossed it in the van. I didn't javelin. I just tossed it in the van. But I did so in a way that I didn't use this arm, which was closest. I used this arm, and I pulled out my shoulder. And I thought, oh, my word. You know, and it was, you know, it's that kind of burning pain. And I thought, well, there I go again, you know. And so it brought me to a point where though I was grieved that it happened to me, I also was able to say, but I know pain and I know that this pain isn't as bad as other pains that I have seen witness. And those people and their pain have been bigger than what is paining me right now. And so it's identifying right now that in life we have pains, but there's always somebody that's pained worse than you. And we always can say, at least we should in our discipline, 
I've got a helper that's accessible to me. And so I did pray. And I did, in my prayer, ask, Lord, can you help heal this arm? Because I, it was kind of that feeling that I thought, I'm not going to be able to hold the guitar. It's one of those pain. I, I had it happen down in Mexico. I couldn't play for half a month or longer. Just could not hold the guitar. And I thought, oh, Lord, can I just not have that happen to me? And I believe that he honored because me because my desire was to worship him. Let's move to 116, see where uh, we can get through this. In verses 1 through 5, the um, evidence is clear that he's speaking from the point of an anguish that was suffered. It closes in verse 4 to that extent. And I thought the teaching was very satisfactory on that last week. He remembered in anguish, but instead of that being the consuming part of where he was living at or choosing to be depressed over, what he chose to do was to say, and this is where we found it, um, I love the Lord because, and we reviewed what that meant, I love the Lord because, and we anchored that in First John. He loved me. He loves me. God is love. Love is of God. So when we took a look at that, it then moves us into two other positions that the psalmist takes, that we kind of see it open up. And one of those would be not simply, if you would, remembering the anguish, but remembering the God who delivers us from anguish and our declaration of love for him. But the other the other would be in verses 5 through 11, remembering mercy. And 5 begins this way. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. One of the songs was mentioning that, the soul and the distraught potential of the soul needs to be lifted up. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. And I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And so the psalmist moves into identifying right now that we have the attribute of God's love, but we also have this beautiful attribute of God's mercy. And so those are the events that we can say, I got through that, or I wasn't living in the consequence of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that we get away with anything, but I do believe that mercy does have with it an evidence that says it could have been really bad. I deserve to really have a consequence in that, and the Lord spared me, and that's merciful because he is a merciful God. We have... Judges and their job is to adjudicate with fairness, but ultimately 
the decision about a judgment that renders a person guilty renders a consequence to that person. All of us under sin are guilty of sin. There's a law that decrees that, and it requires a punishment. And on the premise that we have none, none of us have experienced the punishment literally of our sin because the Lord took that punishment on the cross, that is something that we are not to forget. That's a benefit to us. We have not received what we do deserve. The Lord took that upon himself that we could live in liberty, experience overwhelming grace, and it is a marvelous thing, right? The same feeling would be, and we can put this into something practical, and I have before, but to me it's, it's like one of the great reliefs. The lights go on, and it's not somebody's brights behind you. It's something like Christmas tree lights sparkling in your rearview mirror. And you know that that person behind you is law enforcement, and your mind is racing to ask yourself, what is it that I've done? Sometimes we know what we've done, and sometimes we don't know what we've done. And when we know what we've done, it's all the more, if you would, oppressive when we see those lights. When we don't know what we've done, it has as well a moment of anguish because we don't want to be there. We don't want to be pulled over. In a small town, everybody knows your car, right? And you, and you say, of all places, why would he pull me over here? Or she. I've been pulled over by he's and she's. The bottom line is that if it is something that is warning me, hey, your tail light's out, your brake light's out, you need to have that fixed. I have immediate relief that it's not as bad as I thought it was. But then if I found myself, in fact, speeding and having been guilty of it, don't deny it, and I say, officer, I'm sorry, I saw the sign, I wasn't quick enough to reduce my speed, I saw the stoplight, I thought I could run it on the yellow, sorry, and they can look up. They go back to their car. They look up your, your record. And I've had them come back. And they have said, you know what? You've got a pretty good sheet. I'm going to let you off with a warning right now. Don't run a yellow. Stop completely at a sign. And if you're good with that, here's your identification. And you can be free to go now. And the feeling is always the same, though. Relief. That's mercy. Mercy gives you this great relief for not getting what it is you have deserved. So the psalmist right now is really echoing that need that we all have and want, which is the mercy of God, whatever circumstance you're in. Mercy is a wonderful, refreshing breath of fresh air when all you feel is the breath of judgment, of condemnation, of transgression. That's why mercy is such a wonderful thing to give to somebody. Oh, we could give them what we think they deserve, but has God given you what you deserve? And if he hasn't given you what you deserve, why would you not want to reciprocate and spare someone in the same manner that you were blessed? The same manner. So that's, that's an awesome thing. Now, the psalmist right now moves from this in verse 11, which really does capture 
remembering the mercy of God, to verses 12 through 19. And this is where we see just a fervent gratitude, which is kind of what I was trying to imply. We're so grateful. We are so grateful. The stop sign that we transgressed didn't lead to a crash within the intersection, you know, the whatever it may be. Cited but forgiven. Mercy. Gratitude's expressed right now in verses 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? This is kind of what we would say, how can I repay God? Now, I've tried to repay God. It doesn't work. He will never let you repay him in a manner in which you can take credit. There's a point where it becomes, if you would, a buy-off. And so God doesn't permit that. What he enjoys is an authentic appreciation for what it is you are grateful for. So one of the greatest things that we can do is show gratitude to God for what it is he's done. The previous verses indicate for the benefits. What have we received from the Lord? We know that here there are things that are questionable about what our life is going to be like and how our life has been. But ultimately, everybody has something that we can say, I have received a great benefit from God. I'm a beneficiary of being a son or daughter of the Lord, of being a part of a family. You know, for some people, this is the most functional, dysfunctional family that they'll ever, ever come into. And I say that not to cut us, but honestly, when you look at it, it's only God that could put such individuals with such personalities, such temperaments, quirks, you know, preferences and biases together and make us love one another. And I say that making because I really do believe he's, he is a potter who is making us not like, I'm going to make you, you know, like we did with our kids. You're going to like each other. So you're going to sit at a table, look at each other till you love each other. And it generally doesn't work because we're kicking underneath the table. But when God puts us together, his spirit works within us to allow us to have a savoring moment of distinction and uniqueness. You know, we, I, we really were here till 10, almost 45 last week. And it wasn't, I'm not going to, you're going. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, you think I'm a wimp? Hmm. I'll stay here till 11. I call your bluff. And we actually did have a grouping of people that, that's kind of like, almost like what it seemed like. You think you can outlast me in the house of God? I don't think so. But actually what we were doing was enjoying fellowship to literally our exhaustion until the clock said, you know, we got, I only had five minutes to go back. But there were others that had to really say, oh, Lord, for the benefits that I've received, I am willing to drive my 40 minutes to get back home. So in the close of this, when he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me or towards me? The thing that we see that I believe is important and highly spiritual, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So this is actually a ministerial cup of blessing. The Jewish ceremonies were full of these kinds of very symbolic elements of drinking to the Lord of feasting before the Lord. They were combinations. They were actually, where an individual engaged in it, is fellowshipping with God. Much like we will say, hey, you want to come out to 
have a cup of coffee with me, have breakfast with me, lunch, whatever it may be, barbecue. And so to the Lord, it's the same concept. It is a pleasure for him to meet with his people and to enjoy the drink offerings with his people. Jesus enjoyed being with his disciples, initiated the cup of blessing, the communion. He would drink a cup of bitterness, of wrath, while he, in the prelude to what he would go through, drank and ate with his disciples a meal that was to fill them and to encourage them. So eating actually is a very important thing to remember and being grateful for. We have been provided, since Christy has been with Zach, meals that are just off the charts. We've had people that with love have delivered food to our door, to our table, and it's gourmet. And why are they doing that? Well, the cup of salvation has been lifted, meaning that God has opened the reserves and the hearts of people with talents and gifts to contribute in what for them is a time of need. We don't have a mom at the home. And though I can toss meat, I can't toss a salad. In fact, you know, we become carnivores at my place. It's like, not steak again, Dad. You're just doing that because it's easy. Five minutes on this side, five minutes on that side, a little garlic salt, you know. But there are people that care <laughs> that I'm not going on keto any longer. So, so we get a really full meal deal. And so that's a benefit. The cup of salvation would be also interpreted as the cup of blessing or of happiness. On the contrary part of that, and it'll show a little bit, there's also a cup of misery. There's a cup of trembling that will be served. It's not our cup. Jesus actually took it. But there will be a cup of trembling that will be drunk, and the dregs will sift through the teeth, and it will be bitter. And it's those people who refuse the cup of salvation, the brokering of the peace offering of drink. There will be a day in which that will come. But we have the cup of happiness, of, of blessing. And this is what this psalmist lifts up to the Lord. And the Lord takes note of that. That's one of the reasons why at dinner time or breakfast or lunch, we as believers have come into the habit of saying grace or saying the blessing. And most of us have gone beyond, you know, thanks for the grub, Amen. Because I'm not saying that that's not a good starting prayer for some people that are entering into a prayer time with the Lord, but we've matured to really embellish simply not the plate that's served before us, but to really document the entire platter of God's grace and mercy towards us. I shall render to the Lord... For all his benefits towards me, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And that's what we do. We call upon the name of the Lord. And we can find ourselves put off now when the phone calls come, right? We all hide. We hit the mute button, whatever it may be. But at one time, the treasure of having a ring on your phone was like, oh, my God. 
good. Somebody's checking in on me. They love me. Now we're not sure whether it's love or loathing. So we run and hide. But to God, when we call upon him, his ear warms towards us. So it continues on to say, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. And, and this isn't, oh, man, I got to cough up something for God. I got to, got to get myself out of this or I got to make up for it. And that isn't the intent right now. This is actually one who, like David said, and out of all my resources, even above what is my joy to give, my treasury is for the house of the Lord that my son will build. And that's the idea of the overflow of an offering because of the Lord. So the vows to be paid, whatever that may be, and the pledges that you've made, it's not that you're constrained because God's got his thumb on you. It's because you want to, you long to, it feels good to. So what I was saying to get back to one of the first illustrations was, I have tried to pay for the things that God has done for me. And I've learned that in what I was endeavoring to pay for, I couldn't keep up with it. And I think I've shared with you that I became a prolific songwriter and felt that as a result of that, I would gift God back for every song that I wrote a certain amount in finances. So the Lord showed me, <laughs> I can walk your finances down to nothing. I'm still going to bless you as a songwriter, but it's doing nothing to make you a songwriter. And God knew that. So you can't pay off God for a gift that he's already giving you. You can't. Now, I could give offerings that in spite of the blessing and the gifting are genuine and authentic and sincere, but I was moving into an area that was what would be a treachery to say that I'm getting blessed because I'm doing this. It's a tit for tat. God does this for me. I do that for him. God does this for me. I do more for him, more blessings. So he corrected me. And he also continued to allow me to be a songwriter while he corrected me. So this is actually a different expression. This is just overflow. It's the things that when our table is set before us and we had nothing to do with it, that's an overflow. That's somebody who, by a pledge that their heart has made to God, they just want it satisfied to honor him. And that's a wonderful thing. And so the vows to be paid to the Lord in the presence of all his people, it means you're not going to be ashamed, even if it looks weird to them or even if it's something that they would say, man, I'd never do that. You're, you're pleased to be used by the Lord in such a way. It's how so many things get done in the church. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, this may be something that has an odd kind of placement here, but it's really saying that this psalm was actually someone who sensed or was able to recall a deliverance and a moment in which there was the potential of death. So the psalmist acknowledges right now that it's precious. In other words, hmm, my, my attitude may not have been right at the time. I may have had it altogether wrong about those who I have seen having lost their lives. I gave my sister-in-law call last night because it was my brother's uh, birthday, the 13th, and he went to be with the Lord in October. And um, 
I gave her a sentimental call. Hey, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday on Jim's behalf. And she said, oh, I so thank you for that. And the reason I did that is because the sentiment is still new right now. And I said, I want to pray with you before we conclude our conversation. Because the Lord's been touching her life and my nephew's up there. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death or is the death of his godly ones. There is a release. At times we have to contend and deal with sorrow, but it doesn't have to be with regard to jeopardizing our understanding that God views it all together differently than we do. And though no one in the moment, I believe, rejoices, we need to understand that God interprets that transaction of the temporal to the eternal far differently than we do. And so we accept it on God's terms and we sorrow through it in godly ways. I was sorrowed when Jim passed, but I was also blessed because I got a chance to be with him, with my family and with his kids, my nephew and my niece, his wife. So precious in the sight. He is, the indication here is that he has gratitude that he sees things differently now and maybe that he did not see in the very beginning. Oh Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. This is the liberty that we have becoming engaged to the Lord. He's our bridegroom. We are his bride. And it's a great salutation in closing this re-identification that I am your servant. And that's, the Lord loves to hear that. He came to serve, not be served. And so when we say, Lord, I'm your servant, he can totally honor that. And it touches him because that's the way he lived his life on earth. He could have been served. He could have come in such a manner that any who would not serve him would not live past that act of rebellion. But because he served with consummate humility, when we serve him with sincere humility, it touches him. I'm your servant. Great thing to say. I'm your servant. And so when you get mistreated, when you get misunderstood, one of the encouraging words that you can say is with the psalmist, I'm your servant, Lord. And though I have many masters over me right now, and many are harder on me, there were none harder on me in my life experience now than whom you suffered under. The Lord with frequency would be abused in both speech and treatment. Never took it out on them. Rather, he took it upon himself to walk in the Father's will. I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maid servant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The important part there is the sacrifice of thanksgiving, that sometimes it's hard to give thanks, which means that this is why it's called a sacrifice. It takes an effort. It takes a resignation. It takes, at times, tears to give thanks to the Lord.
and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. It would seem to be that in the closing, he's emphasizing that there is an activity. It may have been a time in which one of the celebrations was going on, that this may have been a temple moment, which is, again, what I think we're involved in. When we do these things, this is a temple moment. And I believe it's an important part of a connection with the Lord and with one another. So about five things I just want to conclude with. In identifying verses 1 through 4, the anguish can be for you, as I believe it could be for this psalmist dealing with mental, physical, and spiritual pain, and very likely preceded by some tragedy. It's not an excuse. It's saying that in it, your anchor must be. So why do you love the Lord? You're anguishing, but why do you love the Lord? See, that's one thing that I found always pulls me off of what I'm focusing on, which is my anguish, is when I'm redirected to the God who delivers me from my anguish. Why do you love the Lord? We've seen it in you. Why do you? Let's... Let's share about that. So even when I can talk about Zachary, I can talk more about the Lord in Zachary's life. And that's important. But even if my talking of Zachary would have been past tense, meaning that the Lord did something altogether on that day, I would still have to, with authenticity and sincerity, be able to say, why do I love the Lord? Don't understand what happened on that day, but it doesn't change as to why do I love the Lord. See, I have to have a reason anchored, not simply because I'm receiving from him, but, but truly he's worthy of that hard examination. And it may come to all of us at some point in time. It usually does. Mental, physical, spiritual pain preceded by tragedy. The second point to make that I think this psalmist shows us from verses 5 through when we left off in 11 is this relinquishing. Relinquishing simply would mean to us a voluntary ceasing to keep something. So it might be for those of us here to keep bitterness, to keep anger, to keep justification as to why you're now different than the walk you presently or were presently on or where you want to be but you just refuse to go in that footstep of faith. Anguish, the Lord's taken care of. Relinquish, the tragedy must be put behind and you must let go. That's ultimately what I had to, I had to let go and put him in the hands of the Lord and then the hands of the Lord worked through the hands of many, 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 many people, multitudes, agencies, all working on behalf of the Lord, whether they knew it or not, in ways that I could not. That still is at work. Number three, as we move from verses 5 through 11 through 12 through 19, distinguish. Anguish, okay, ponder what that was. Relinquish, let it go. Distinguish. That means worthy of respect. That no matter what has happened, how you feel, God's worthy of respect. The person or the thing may not be, but God is. 
And it's important for him to hear that from our lips. It's important in order to move from anguish, in order to be a beneficiary, you have to relinquish. You then have to be one that can say, I am going to find myself distinguished by showing respect to God in this circumstance, worthy of respect. Number four and five, continue to accomplish. The psalmist finished his psalm. He accomplished something. Finish your song. Finish what the Lord has put before you to do. We all have a reason to quit for something. But God says, finish it. Well, how do I? Well, seek the Lord on that. Well, the door's been shut. Test the doorknob again. See if, in fact, is ready to be opened. But you are to finish what God says he has started because he is doing a completing work in all of us. So there's an accomplishment that I can say this psalmist finished. He finished it. So finish what God has put before you. This is the second church that I've pastored. I've been all over the place, and yet my places also have been very small. I intend to finish, but I want to finish well, and I want to leave it in order, and I want to have a next generation work happen. But that's for God to do. I just know my part is to finish. But I also finish things by having a confidence that even if I leave and leave for the purpose of being with Zach or Chrissy, the Lord has equipped the church to do quite fine without me. People are for me, but they're willing to say, in your absence, it will be tended. And it really has worked. I actually don't even have to write out lesson plans. I used to as a teacher. I really don't. I just have to say, hey, God bless you guys. Thanks for how it's going to work out. And I go, huh? And the Spirit of God comes on. The next day, bulletins are being done and the songs are being sung, and the words being taught. And I'm aware that's going on, but I'm not worried about how it's going on. And then in closing, because this was a finished work, it became a published work as a result. You make testimony of what God has, in his faithfulness, shown you. You publish the goodness of God that people know that no matter what they're going through, his goodness will be revealed in an outcome that will be better than they expected. And so those are, the, those are the five points that I would like you to consider. Anguish, it's not what you think it is, but you must think beyond it and handle the Lord. Relinquish, let go of what is binding you because Psalms back here was telling us that we've been free. We've been set free of those bonds. Distinguish, he's worthy of respect. When you give God respect, you will have favor with God and man, and you will find yourself distinguished before your audience. The accomplishments, finish them. That means you're going to have success. Finish them. And boast in the Lord. There you go.